Everybody, welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast, Kent here. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. Today, I'm, I'll be speaking with Eloise Skinner. She has a new book out called But Are You Alive? And the subtitle is How to Design a Life Worth Living. As you'll see, she um, has a pretty interesting background. I'll kind of let her introduce herself as we get going in the podcast here. But maybe I'll begin with just a little passage from the introduction to her book here. Here's what she says. For myself, this work of becoming more alive has been my project over the last decade. And it's made my life challenging in a lot of ways. For one thing, it's taken me in and out of a range of careers. And in the pursuit of full aliveness, I found it difficult to settle on one path. And on a personal level, it's been exhausting. Phenomenology, existentialism, the meaning of life, trying to find your purpose. These topics are confronting, frustrating, and often yield no immediate results. The deeper you go, the more difficult it gets. And then there's the question of whether we're entitled to be asking these types of questions at all. It can feel risky to do this work, to move away from comfort and towards the unknown, and it often feels self-indulgent to be pondering our own existence. But at the heart of it, these are questions that human beings have been asking themselves and each other for millennia. How can we truly experience our fleeting moments on this planet? How can we live in such a way that the depth of our life becomes more meaningful than the length of it? How can we get to a position where we can look back at our journey and think, yes, that was my life, and I cr- a life I created and designed, and a life I lived fully? In the end, this work is an enduring human tradition, an instinct, and an impulse toward deeper aliveness. I'm attracted to this book for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is just the title, because I think the, the question of aliveness or of vitality is is also to ask the question of meaning. They're like uh, holding hands. And she does, I think, a really good job of, of helping us enter this existential and also practical terrain. As you'll tell from our conversation and, and from the book itself, that it's an extremely practical book. It's divided into body, mind, um, work, and self sort of a, her own sort of holistic frame for, for a way of talking about a full life. And she gives attention to each of these dimensions of our, of our humanness in, in uh, clever and interesting ways. And, and maybe more importantly, the, the book is filled with practices, tons of practices, tons of, of suggestions. Some of them come up in our conversation, many more in the book itself. And, and I appreciate that because you know, I love ideas. I love musing on ideas and and uh, questions. But the I think probably the most powerful way uh, into living with a question is to change the way we live. And the 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 primary invitation of most spiritualities is to enter that door through practice. And so I think you'll find 
You'll find some really simple and I think helpful suggestions in our conversation and in the book itself. So anyway, that's probably enough of, of an introduction to our conversation. I hope you uh, appreciate it. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, thanks again for all your support, uh, especially to my patrons who make this podcast happen. Uh, special thanks just for uh, a couple of new patrons that came on and and for those of you who, who offered so many thoughts and questions on the last two podcasts that I, that I, that I made with my wife, Mandy, about Israel, um, we'll consider making another one just because some additional things are sort of uh, feel important. But we're right in the middle of, uh, of our big move to Georgia. This is our final week in Michigan. We're packing the house, loading the horses, not a metaphor, and going to Georgia. So, yeah, um, so some huge changes. One quick um, kind of invitation for January. As you know, I I'm, have been working with dreams and care a great deal about dreams. And um, as a part of, uh, of the spiritual life, as a part of um, working with our own unconscious material, I've been into it for many years now. And um, I, in fact, I just returned from an animus program, a dream work program where I was apprenticing. In any case, I'm going to be offering, I've done this once before, but I'm going to be offering a, a four-week uh, dream work course online in uh, January. So if that's something that interests you, um, I encourage you, encourage you to sign up. It'll be on Sunday nights in January and would love to see you there. If you have questions about dreams, we're going to work with dreams in the, in the intensive itself in the, in the class, um, as well as just provide some basic frames and, um, ways of working on your own. So I'm really excited about that. And, uh, the details are on my website, kentdobson.com. I'll probably release a couple podcasts on dreams, uh, have some ideas so you can, um, hopefully those will be out in December and, um, yeah, maybe that's, uh, that's all I want to, to say at the moment. And yeah, let's, uh, turn our attention to this conversation. I hope you, I hope you enjoy. Yeah. So the first thing I want to say is thanks for coming on the podcast and thanks for sending me your book. And, and I enjoyed it. And I particularly enjoyed um, the way you described the practices. This book is full of practices and, and you describe them. Some of them, as you say, are quite ancient and have a whole kind of history and um, sort of geography to them but you also introduce them in a very accessible way. So um, I want to ask you, well, how would you, how would you introduce yourself? Like, what would yeah, you say? Thank you for having me. Um, and yeah, I'm such a big fan of the podcast. I really love the topics you talk about. So I'm really, really pleased to be here. Um, and in terms of introducing myself, I sometimes struggle a bit because I have different different types of career and things I've explored um at the moment I am moving more into psychotherapy as my main focus um I specialize in a field called existential psychotherapy or existential therapy which is really focused on like finding meaning and purpose and helping people navigate these bigger questions that we all walk through at various stages in life 
and I've just started a master's in existential analysis. So that's my sort of academic focus at the moment. And then the book, which is um, quite recent and a few other books before that. And then I do quite a lot of like um, sort of physical focus work. So I'm a fitness instructor. I do some dance and things like that, which um, for me has been really helpful to integrate that sort of body focused stuff as well into my more like mental mind focused work. Um, so yeah, that's, I'm not sure if that's a good introduction, but that's a mix. <laughs> yeah, it's a good introduction. Um, what I, I, so existential therapy, this is the terrain I'm interested in. I mean, just personally, I don't know if, I mean, not just therapy, but just existential questions in the most general sense. And, um, and the conversation of meaning and, or the conversation with meaning that's possible with, a, as, as you would put it, I mean, we should say the title of the book, um, but are you alive as, as a question? And that, to me, that is the right kind of question. Um, and okay. So I, I want to ask, first of all, were you always interested in sort of, uh, meaning oriented questions or did that come up because of, um, I don't know, like a, a crisis or, a um, uh, did you trip and fall somewhere along the way? I mean, how, how would you, what would you say? Yeah, I think maybe a, a blend of those two things, actually. I definitely had a, a few years of crisis or of kind of like slow moving crisis. You know, sort of trying to figure out what, what I wanted to do with my time and who I was in terms of my identity and yeah, how I wanted to shape my career. I started in corporate law. So I, I went to university to study law and that was quite a traditional career path. From university in the UK to um, studying and then training as a solicitor and I really enjoyed that I think it sort of touched on a few fields I really liked uh, reading writing and arguing with other people <laughs> some of my <laughs> favorite things to do um, but throughout that career path I had the sense of maybe there was something else or something different that I wanted to explore as well and I was really getting into spirituality at the time um, I ended up spending a year in a monastic style program in London, which really shaped the direction of the next couple of years, because, you know, that experience of just turning inwards and spending a lot of time reflecting on who you are and what you want to do. I think that then sort of um, switched my direction into things like existential therapy and teaching yoga and meditation and those kind of more um, meaningful practices. And so, yeah, in answer to your question, I think probably a slow evolution of trying to find the right path and at the same time exploring lots of different things which has been at times extremely frustrating and at times really fulfilling so it's a mix yeah can you say more about this program i mean how old were you at the time and who was in this program and what 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 do you mean by monasticism yeah it's um it's always a tricky thing to describe because obviously there are so many different traditions and ways of looking at it and now in London, there are lots of different new and probably across the world as well, but definitely in London, there are lots of new communities that are leaning into this kind of new monastic movement, which is taking ideas from traditional monastic communities like Benedictine Ignatian, things like that, and formulating them into sort of more modern community-based organizations or community-based commitments where you're sort of joining a group of people um, under like a rule of life or something like that. Um, so you're living according to a set of principles. This particular one that I did was um, hosted by the Archbishop of Canterbury in London. Um, it's called a year a year in God's time, and it was essentially 
a year program with two tracks. One was residential, so you would stay within the monastic style community. And one was what they call integrated, which meant that you were doing your kind of normal day job, which for me, I was uh, a corporate lawyer. And then you would also do like sort of monastic um, style commitments. So you'd have a weekly meeting and then silent retreats and sort of prayer retreats and things like that. Um, and yeah, the year was formed around... Yeah, a couple of different things. The rule of life was a big thing. Um, and this is the idea that you have maybe like 10 commitments that you live according to these main principles. So that might be silence or um, sort of like poverty in the sense of like giving up things that you don't need or not acquiring things that you don't need, things like that. Um, community, study, service, like giving back. Um, and then you try and formulate your life even without like outside of the bounds of being with the community, you're still trying to formulate your life according to those principles. So it was an interesting experiment I guess and one mm. of the ideas of the community is to see like can this work in the modern world or is mm. it that the ideas really were just suited to a particular time and place that just is inapplicable now yeah yeah well what's the what's your feeling on that <laughs> yeah. does that work I mean I, I get the appeal like I I mean I've gone through different sort of seasons of attraction to the to the very thing that you're describing but of course not knowing how to do it I mean do you just cook cook one up? Do you start a commune? Do you join something that already exists? Is it a con is it contextually embedded? Like, I mean, it is true that it's like, um, I like that phrase, you were born for a time such as this, you know, well, what is that time? What is that era? What comes out of the particular conflation of history and politics and ideas and religion and spirituality and just monasticism belong in some other era what i mean what did what did you feel can it be done now and what would you say yeah it has such an interesting history in monasticism because it's kind of um you can see it in different communities and different cultures all throughout different periods of time so it is something that i think is inherent that desire in us um can be inherent in different yeah. you know, contexts to sort of strip our lives back and the thing that really attracted me the most about it and this kind of comes back to what you were saying about my book earlier in terms of it being very practical is um you know I was already involved in spirituality like going to a local church and um actually you probably know the church oasis <laughs> um mm. and yeah just really interested in how some of these theological ideas were actually being applied in reality and so you can say that you believe a certain set of things but what does your actual day-to-day -day life look like and that kind of any kind of um dissonance or like difference between what you say you're believing on one hand and how your life looks on the other hand I found a little bit frustrating as I was kind of going deeper into um Christianity as a as a movement and um yeah monastic spirituality was something that seemed to really provide like a an opportunity to practice some of the stuff that people say you know you say that you care about this well here's a chance to really like live it out <laughs> almost like an extreme form of spirituality in some way so that really attracted me about it that really attracted me to it and then um as to whether it works or not <laughs> I don't know it's hard to say whether it works because I'm not sure it has like a particular end goal <laughs> um it's certainly yeah, what is what, what yeah. I mean before you go on because that's that's interesting um yeah what is the goal I mean you're saying maybe it doesn't even have an end goal, but like, what's your suspicion? What What's it aiming toward? Maybe that's a better way of putting it. Yeah, I think, you know, this, the particular program that I was on was aiming towards sort of a process of reorientation, like personal reorientation. The idea was to step out of your life and have some time to think, what do I actually want to do? 
do I want to change career do I want to I mean a lot of people went from that program further into some kind of religious um, position or like religious commitment for their career um, so it definitely was there was that aspect to it um, and then I think just finding some stillness and silence away from the rest of your life to really like turn inwards a little bit because um, we live lives that are so outward facing a lot of the time especially in a city like London where you're constantly kind of like giving yourself outwards and it's almost like a countercultural approach to you know being with yourself and actually just looking inwards or looking within a small community which again is like pretty countercultural when you think you know we live in these huge cities but we might not actually feel connected to our neighbors or you know people down the road or whatever um so yeah in traditional communities I guess they would have had a more long-term goal of union with the divine or something a bit more mystical but um yeah I think maybe it depends on your interpretation as to what you want to get out of it yeah okay something I was thinking about um as you were speaking so I've had some formal part of my graduate work was in comparative religion and so I was really interested in early Christianity and some of these monastic traditions before they were even really called that. And here's an observation one of my professors had, which I thought was interesting, that um, monasticism only works if it's in relationship to the broader culture. In fact, you can't find any examples that are completely exclusive. Like even like the desert fathers or mothers or whatever, they're they're way out there, so to speak, in the deserts of Egypt and Syria, but they're really not that far. And people are coming and going. There's like a relationship between it's um a kind of chosen community and the broader culture. And I, I sort of found that interesting in your in your options for this program. You could do it like a residential one, or you could just whatever, be a corporate lawyer and commit to the rule of life and come in and out but that's part of i think there is a conversation that that seems important between a more conscious kind of religious life i don't know what to call it but i guess that's good enough a kind of religious life and then the broader sort of um um flow of culture or something like that and so okay i'm working up to a question i guess that was more of an observation um all right. So here's the subtitle of your book, How to Design a Life Worth Living. And I think, so I want to ask a question. How much say do we get in the design and how much of um, the pattern or the tradition or traditions have a say in the things that that give us meaning or or make us alive or give us the feeling of life? How much choice do we have? Do I, I just feel like there's, it's so it's such an interesting tension tension because um, your year your experimental year with monasticism you don't have especially traditional you don't have a lot of choices you know you're given a you're given a rule of life you're given an order you're given here are the times of of day that you should be up to certain kind of things of course there's always like you're an autonomous human being you can I'm sure there's some freedom built within that but. I I just I'd like you to sort of play with the tension between how much choice do we have and how much of it is like consent to patterns or practices or rituals or ceremonies. Can you speak to that? Yeah, that's really interesting. I think I'm not sure about um, you know, what it what it would feel like or what the experience would be like to commit to a monastic lifestyle full time for the rest of your life. I think um 
But then a lot of the people that I encountered who were full-time, had committed to that lifestyle full-time, um, they did speak of, you know, finding a sense of liberation within the boundaries of like something so strict and something mm. so like regimented. Even then, like the decision to commit yourself to that process in itself is like such a personal uh, choice or like personal act that mm. I think you can almost find like a sense of yeah freedom within that choice that you've made, even if the actual experience itself is quite boundaried um but yeah to and this might be like crossing fields a little bit into something else but the real um sort of uh theory behind a subtitle like that is more like on the existential psychotherapy side in the sense that in existential therapy and especially the work of victor frankl like logotherapy uh man's search for meaning kind of um content or theories um this is based around the idea that you always always have a choice of mm. what to do, how to respond to the things that happen to you. And okay. even if your options are practically limited, personally, you always stand in the position of authority. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's uh, look into that because I'm attracted to this, this idea, lo logo therapy, say a little more. Um, why logos? Why is that embedded in there? Tell us a little bit about uh, Victor Frankl and, and how you, well, who he is, but also how you, how you came to, to his work and this sort of stuff. Yeah, so um, Viktor Frankl, he um, was a psychiatrist and psychotherapist. He experienced life in the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. And um, yeah, he was already exploring these ideas of what it would mean to bring these questions of meaning and purpose into the field of psychotherapy, um, but really had the opportunity to kind of see what those theories look like in you know possibly the worst circumstances that someone could imagine. Mm. So really testing out what is the power of someone who has a sense of meaning and purpose within a situation like that? Does it make a difference? Does it give you a sense of resilience? Does it give you a sense of hope? Is it part of almost like a, a tool that could be used in psychotherapy you know, in any other context in a more normal life context as well? Um, and when he survived that experience, he then wrote or and then started to put together this book, Man's Search for Meaning, which is part autobiography of his own experiences and part sort of laying out this field called logotherapy, which is essentially um, a form of therapy that focuses around finding meaning or finding meaning as a searching for meaning as a part of um, wellness or, you know, general mm -hmm. health. And this field has developed a lot since then. These days, it's a little bit broader. It tends to be a bit more expansive, take in other fields as well. Um, so there's no real set, you know, apart from logotherapy as a traditional field. It, there are other fields now which kind of get grouped or like brought together under the term existential therapy, which isn't really mm -hmm. a technical term, but it's kind of just the summary. Um, yeah, the idea is that having a strong sense of personal meaning, whether that is in your career, relationships, um, life in general with your physical wellness that kind of thing um can be a really powerful tool for you know having just being grounded and present in the world and having this holistic or integrated sense of being well um and so yeah those were some of some of his ideas yeah beautiful um okay what's the relationship between aliveness maybe you can because that this is how the book begins i mean with a question about being fully alive i thought of um um, who is it? Arrhenius, I think. Um, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. You ever heard that line before? I'm sure you have. Maybe it's in there. I don't know. Maybe it's in your book. But yeah, this this notion of aliveness. So yeah, maybe give us a little definition there. 
Um, how do you understand aliveness? And is that, um, and what's the relationship between that um, phenomenon of aliveness and meaning? Like, what's the relationship? Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that I never want to do and I've always tried to avoid doing is like telling people what the answer is to big questions like you know yeah well i can tell you do a good job in the book saying I, <laughs> there are several ways of understanding this so fear not yeah i'm yeah i'm extremely like hands off when it comes to telling people what the meaning of their life should be which i think can be frustrating because i've definitely read books before where i'm like please tell me the answer to this question mm. um but i personally don't think i know what the answer to anyone else's question is i think it's just more that to engage in the question itself mm. is task or the uh call of the of our lives um mm. and how you do that is kind of up to you and sort of fits with your lifestyle and what works for you in different ways and that's really what i wanted to offer with the book is like just a broad range of things that you could try if you wanted to to see if it works and even with this sense of like what is aliveness again i think it's such a subjective um experience and for me it's something that would be um less theoretical and more like embodied and felt and experienced in the world so do you feel like on a day-to-day -day basis your life is full that you feel engaged that you feel present that you feel grounded that you feel like you belong here all of these are kind of like the big existential foundations of your life um and then this experience of being fully in the world and not just kind of skimming through or like being on the surface which is how I personally had felt for quite a few years of my career that I was yeah. like checking all the boxes of like career get a flat you know do this do that like get a degree like ticking the boxes off and then sort of feeling like actually so disconnected from all of it like it wasn't actually present in my life that it was just um that I was just like passing through without really touching it if that makes sense but then even it then it's yeah. like it's hard to <laughs> put it into words but I think you know and everyone feels it so differently but um I think what I'm grasping for with the idea of aliveness is something that just encompasses all of the things that make us feel like fully here and fully engaged with the world. Um, so mm -hmm. whatever that, yeah. 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 I like the word vitality mm. um, or even eros, like a mm. kind of, a kind of aliveness, a kind of um, an experience of aliveness. I actually, my, my personal feeling is that um, it's, it's almost like joining something that, is larger than your own individual. Um, it's it's almost like you, it's not something that you would attain, but it's an experience that you sort of slide into, <laughs> um, or that carries you along. Uh, this yeah. kind of vitality and and what you're describing about I don't know skimming across the surface of your life. I mean, this is <laughs> a huge majority of people that I you know work with and. They, they know what you're talking about, um, ticking boxes, and there's some kind of absence of vitality or absence of aliveness um, that you can either uh, consent to the question um, or ignore it, keep ignoring it, I don't know, till you die, I suppose. Um, yeah, and uh, okay, so where do we, where, I want to, okay, maybe I'll just give people a sense of frame and you can, you can help me out here because I think you did an excellent job of writing, um, giving people an accessible map 
but also allowing it to be holistic enough to encompass the sort of broad spectrum of of our human experience, like mind, body, work, and self. We can talk about self later because I have some questions about that. But mind, body, work, self. I mean, is this a frame? Where where where'd you get this? It's kind of like a, a simple way of saying it, or did it just occur to you over time that here's a way of framing it? And um, yeah, that's kind of an open ended question. But what would you say? Yeah, that's funny actually. My um, because I had to run the final manuscript past my tutor, my existential um psychotherapy tutor. And he said exactly the same thing. He was like, where did this framework come from? Did you just, he was like, is this your framework that you're committing to? I was like, I'm not sure. Like it just, <laughs> it really, for me, those seem to be like the main categories. And from what I have had observed with other people as well, obviously mind, body, soul is like a big way that those are often broken down. But for me, like career and work seems like such an important part as well. And like, I don't think they necessarily fit into, I wouldn't just put them into mind, for example. Um, so I think for me, it was important to have a sort of work focused chapter where you're thinking about, you know, not, not just what it means to have a meaningful life, but seeing as work is such a big component of that. Like, how are you going to shape your career? And especially in a world that's changing so much with careers and, you know, today's newest generation of people coming into the workplace will have, let's say like 12 or 13 careers throughout their lifetime. So it really is an opportunity mm -hmm. to find something that is also makes you feel alive, at least to some extent, um, given you'll be spending so much time doing it. Um, so yeah, mind, body, work. And then, yeah, I was a little bit torn with self. I thought maybe just captured the rest of the other things <laughs> that, mm -hmm. that I wanted to talk about. Um, and that was more, I guess, like leaning into the spirituality uh, the soul you know kind of spirit side um but without really pushing it too far that way because I did want to leave it open for people who also weren't interested in pursuing a more kind of like spiritual approach to it who just wanted to feel a deep connection to the self mm -hmm. yeah okay so let's talk about work because I thought that was an interesting contribution um even you know, I, I work with people in a one-on-one -on -one setting, and and also in wilderness programs and things like that. And sometimes I'll, I'll I kind of use an arbitrary um, separation between what I what I like. I got this from from Bill Plotkin, um between survival dance and sacred dance. And I like to say that they're just kind of intention. They never they never really go away. There's a everyone has a survival dance. I mean, you don't nobody gets to get out of it. Even uh. Unless you have a trust fund, but even that, I you know, I I, I wonder, you know, like no, there's still a survival dance, um, and then there's like a sacred dance, which is a little more like asking questions of meaning or maybe even purpose, but um, a way of bringing the 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 shape of the soul into the world, something like that. Um, but I have to admit, I often ignore questions of career. Although that's where a lot of people want to start. What the hell am I doing with my life? And how did I end up doing this? And can I rethink it? And can I reshape it? And um, and you said something very obvious at the beginning of that chapter, which is, uh, maybe I have the math wrong, you can help me, but something like eight, what'd you say, 8,000 hours or something like that of our life? What is it? Uh, like 80. It's like 80. I think it's actually 90,000 hours. That's okay. Like so the, even worse than I thought. All right. <laughs> yeah. 80,000 hours. I was like, oh my God. All right. So 
it's not just a survival dance. You know, this is a huge part of how most people live and move in the world. And, and a lot of what we think of as um, even identity, maybe too much so. I mean, people associate their identity with their work, but I just mean we can't turn away from the questions that work poses on us. Um, and so, okay, let's, and yeah, give us a, maybe I want to ask you, take us a little into that, into that chapter. Like, well, what would you recommend? What kind of questions are people asking you about work and, um, and what direction do you begin to point them toward maybe a practice or two, uh, to, to deepen their, the, the tension that's rising? Yeah. Um, I mean, there are so many questions that people have, like you said, it's such a big topic and it actually tends to be one of the first indicators of if you're feeling a loss of meaning or a loss of vitality in your life, it actually tends to show up, let's say in your, in your daily working life, which tends to be the majority of your day, you're going out and doing something. And if that thing that you're doing isn't fulfilling you in any particular way, then, um, you know, that can sort of spill over into the rest of your life because it's quite hard to um, split up your life into boxes and just say this part is doing great and this part is not and I'm just yeah. going to focus on this part um, but instead looking at the whole thing and um, so I think the ba- main questions people have are like you said what what am I doing <laughs> like how have I a lot of the times how have I got into the, how have I got into this career how have, how have I ended up here is it too late I get from a lot of people who have been in a career path for a particular amount of time and they feel like they've committed now and they're just stuck there I think in the UK, at least, um, we encourage people to choose their career path really young. And especially for these bigger career um, industries, like let's say law, or like if you're going into uh, medicine or teaching or something that's kind of a big industry in itself, um, you tend to specialize quite early on. And then, you know, you can continue that throughout your career. So you can get put it on a track and, you know, turn around 15 years later and think, wow, that wasn't even, you know, that was a different self that decided that career Mm. path you know for me picking law when I was 15 years old was like a very different experience to continually choosing law even at 28 29 you know that's a very Mm. different circumstance very different um context but um yeah and also how to find meaning say if it's a job that you are satisfied with or that like you said fulfills that kind of survival instinct it pays your mortgage you feel like this is the job that you're settled in. It uses your skills and maybe it's giving you good professional development, but you just don't feel that sense of like meaning and purpose in it. I think helping people navigate questions of, can you actually find or look for meaning in the existing career that you have if you're okay there, but you just feel like you want a little bit more depth or purpose within it. Um, So those are a a few of the things. And in terms of um, exercises for that last one in particular, um, there's an exercise in the book where, I talk about, you know, what it means to find meaning at work and the idea of finding, you know, not like necessarily an overarching sense of meaning and purpose in the job that you do. Let's say you are a yoga instructor <laughs> like me. <laughs> part-time. Um, not necessarily. Well, I guess there could be obviously a lot of people find like a very, very specific sense of meaning and purpose, but you can also find it in small smaller things so it could be the interactions that you have with people every day are meaningful or it could be you know teaching someone a new technique or tool is meaningful but like you know not 24 hours of the job every single day has to be has to be full of meaning it's more just finding these like little pockets of meaning um 
And so, yeah, there's some of the questions that I help people with in terms of like the practice are, can you track through like a day at work and find what was the moment where you felt like most fulfilled or, you know, you felt a sense of connection? Was it, for example, mentoring someone, like mentoring a junior colleague or um, having a chat to someone about like a new idea or a new, like, you know, bringing in a new vision, bringing something to life? Um, or was it, you know, seeing the results of your work come into effect? Um, sometimes we can be quite removed from like what we're actually doing. So if we're working for a big team, like the actual work product is sometimes invisible to us, but taking the time to think, you know, what is this job actually for? Like what good is it delivering? Can sometimes give you that sense of like, even if it's not overall meaning, it's just these moments of connection to the work that you're doing. Um, so that's one thing. Um, and then another thing that I think, another tool that I think has been really helpful for me at least, and this, especially when you're thinking about changing careers and, you think, oh, I have no idea how to change industries from, let's say, corporate law to psychotherapy. That seems like a huge jump. And it's like really like scary to think about doing something like that. And it feels really unstable and uncertain. And there's going to be a huge bit in the middle where you're like not good at that thing. And you're also not good at the new things. So and then you just have to like <laughs> be bad at everything for a while. Um, but yeah, helping people um, sort of shift or transition their current skill set into the one that they want to develop can often bring like a real sense of meaning and purpose. And this is sometimes called um, like job design or like, yeah, um, tailoring, like job tailoring your own career. And this could be as simple as say, if you want to be a, um, you're in a big like corporate job, but you want to be an author. This could look like, you know, offering to write something that was in the boundaries of your corporate career, like within the daily uh, responsibilities that you already have offering to write a paper or like offering to write an article or something like getting those skills set up in a way that will help you sort of bridge the gap between this career and the next one um so stuff like that job tailoring job um yeah integration of one career into another i think could be really helpful yeah amazing i mean i guess it depends on people's personality but uh many people have this sort of all or nothing like i have to blow up my career in order to be an author or to use your example. But yeah, it's like, um, like you were saying about Viktor Frankl, maybe we, maybe there's always a choice. There's always a choice in the, in the circumstances in which we find ourselves in that, um, our, is it can, by making the choice, we start pointing or aiming toward the thing, the thing that we're longing for, the thing that needs our, somehow wants our attention in some way. And, yeah. Um, also, too, just I mean, it's kind of an aside. I, I, um, yeah, I just I was thinking just about the power of work itself. I mean, in some sense, I was for some reason I was thinking about the Genesis story. You know, it's seen as kind of a curse in the you know now now you know humanity is cursed and has to till the ground and. Um, but it's also kind of like, it's one of those blessing curses at the same time. It's like consciousness brings a sort of existential terror with it. We're going to die. Um, life is hard. Things aren't always going to work out. The earth isn't just going to do whatever we want, whenever we want. There's toil involved, but it's also part of what makes life meaningful and to toil in anything at all, to ask, like even to ask, what good is this job doing in the world? Um, I've never worked for a big corporation, so I, I can only imagine sort of being swallowed up by someone else's 
agenda or purpose, but it's, but you're also saying there somewhere buried in there might be a sense of freedom, like how I show up in the particular thing that I'm doing might be doing some good in the world or might fulfill at least a little, a sliver of meaning or purpose. And um, yeah, and, and maybe maybe one more piece, which has just has to do with vocation in general. Like my understanding is vocation in Vox, they in Latin comes from voice. And that is a much more like subtle and sort of sophisticated way of talking about career, you know, as a voice in the world. And that seems much more like a, a, a challenge that you can rise to than sort of something you have to just bear as a burden because you got to work for the man or whatever for the rest of your life. It's more like, no, this is an opportunity to, to put your voice or your way of being in the world in some way. Um, anyway, I mean, you, you, you can respond to that if you want. I mean, it's again, it's just kind of an observation. I'm just emphasizing how important I think this chapter is. And I think, um, and also how, how, how frequently people come to existential questions through questions around work. Yeah. And I think, um, also it's interesting about the Genesis, like looking at it from the Genesis story perspective, because there may well be a time probably fairly soon where a lot of us will have our careers taken over by AI or technology right? and will just not be as helpful. You know, you can see that in a, in a career path like law, for example, a lot of the jobs that were previously done by paralegals or, you know, like um, trainee lawyers can now be automated. Like it's much easier to deal with, say, like document management, but hmm. with technology and things like that. And that applies to jobs across the board. So, you know, all types of jobs are going to be um, altered or, you know, drastically changed in the next however many years. And so then there's a question of, okay, but if we end up at some point not working, um, then who are we? Like, then what do we do? Then how are we going to spend our time? Then what matters to us if we're not, if we don't have these like 90,000 hours in our lives of like having to do stuff, um, then like, who are we at the end of that? So I think that's another, it's an existential question that may become more relevant quite soon, probably. Yeah. My, my guess is we'll break the world in some way and say, this is unacceptable. And get back to another form of work. Mm. I just, I, I, I can't imagine a, um, a kind of utopian, my bills are taken care of. AI does all the hard work and I just get to chill. You know, that's just not, that's not going to work in the human spirit. I don't think. Mm. Um, plus we're likely to murder each other. You know, it does, it doesn't solve the, the, the relational dimension of life, you know, and, um, and that's a huge part of meeting as you, as you also point out in the book. So, um, okay. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the self chapter and let's see, I'm just gonna maybe tug on a few threads here. Um, this is kind of to reiterate something I said before, which is what I really appreciate about the book is, is that everything you say in here, there's a practice associated with it. You could even wonder um, which comes first, you know, the, the longing for meaning followed by a practice or the practice awakens the meaning itself or the, 
or clarifies, like lights a lamp for the right kinds of questions. Maybe it's like a little of both, but um, everything, particularly these practices in in the self chapter, I I think are quite powerful and are not unrelated to things I recommend people people do. But um, maybe first, just give us like a, a 101. What do you mean by self here? Because you said uh, a while ago, it kind of encompasses everything else. So what what's the everything else that we're talking about here? Yeah, um, I guess it it might be different for different people. For me, it tends to be things like <laughs> this is the most um, lawyer focused approach to writing about these topics because I'm always like, it depends. It really is. <laughs> it depends on your individual circumstances. So I can't generalize. But um, what I would say is like it tends to be things like dealing with um, transition, change, um, the finality of life. Mm-hmm. Um, practices that allow for just real turning inwards so like a sabbath focused practices where you're really just pausing um things like building a rhythm into your life and your days um how we choose to shape things for ourselves um things like the rule of life so these bigger ideas around how you're actually going to live um Mm. so i'm not sure how if i would summarize those other than being like very personal practices they're really addressing yourself on the level of like who you are as an individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The rule of life. It's funny. Cause, um, when I, when I, so I lived in Israel for a few years and, um, it, you know, it was, it was a time Yeah, I was in historical critical scholarship, you know, academic world. And I read all the, well, most of the early mystics along with because my interest was in early Christianity and, and Judaism and sort of the conversation that was taking place between these two worlds. And and when I came back from this like sort of totally disorienting and profound and wild time in my life, I was really quite lost, to tell you the truth. And I took a, a course from the Dominicans here in town uh, on um, the foundations of Christian spirituality. And it was amazing because I was reading some of the same texts I was reading like a year earlier, but just not in an academic setting, but in in a, I don't know what you would, the Dominicans are quite 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 academically oriented, but it was, it was a context of spirituality. Nuns were teaching the class. And um, anyway, I went through the whole course and it started to get harder. That's, that's like, the content was like getting too much. I was like, and then they asked us to write a rule of life. And I bailed. I, I couldn't even do the final couple of classes because that invitation was like a bit overwhelming for me. Like, what do you mean I get a say in this? First of all, that's troubling because whatever I say, then am I going to have to live by these things or what would I put in? And um, And I think you did a nice job of making it less ominous for one thing but particularly by pointing out value. So I'd like you to just speak a little bit about how you understand a rule of life and how it relates to our values and how would we uncover our values in the first place? Something like that. Yeah, I think um, definitely the intimidating nature of the rule of life is there's almost like two sides to, I think, why people can be put off from doing it or why people don't find it like, wouldn't necessarily look at it as a tool that they want to use one is the kind of like it seems so big it seems so intimidating on the other hand you have people who are really up for doing something like that because they feel like it actually 
or in reality it doesn't really matter that much <laughs> because it's hard to actually once you put you can put it down on paper but it's actually yeah. hard to um make yourself commit to it or so there's almost like two sides of the spectrum for why it might not be or people might not see it as a useful tool um uh but i think the idea on the kind of more intimidating side what i wanted to um communicate to people was that it really doesn't even though it is a rule it's not um a rule that has any like punishments associated with it on the other side of like if you didn't go back to the rule now you have to like repent and like start again kind of thing um so it doesn't have it's not a judgment tool for yourself or like something that should trigger any kind of like shame or guilt about how you live your life but it's more an opportunity to I mean the first step is to kind of get it all down on paper and even the process of like you were going through yourself the process of trying to think of those things can be really challenging and really kind of like um really reflective in a way that we're not often given the opportunity to do because it's very rare that someone would sit down with us and be like, okay, what are the main things in your life that characterize how you want to live? And can you put those into like 10 bullet points? <laughs> I think that's a really difficult thing to do. And if you take it seriously, it could probably tell you quite a lot about yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think in terms of like making that a little bit less um, scary, Uh, I like to think of it as just a self-exploration exercise. And when I work through this, if I'm ever working through it um, as a tool with other people, I always just say, you know, write everything that kind of comes to mind about who you you are and how you like to live in the world. These kind of big categories, like, um, you know, I see myself as someone who has integrity, who trusts other people, who's honest, who's good at communication, who tries to give back and like do some kind of acts of service or contribute something to the world, who has a voice, like you were saying before, who can like, you know, say what they think and, move the world forwards in some way all of that can just go down on the paper it doesn't need to be like perfectly 10 rules that you just come straight off the top of your head kind of thing Mm. Um, and then the process of like sorting through that information and thinking which of these which of these really aligns with the truest sense of who I am and this is only also for right now this is like at the moment and you can always rewrite the rule of life if you wanted to um, so it doesn't have to be forever but yeah, just trying to categorize, pull some of those things together into bigger categories. So some really traditional ones might be like the idea of service, for example, trying to give back or like contribute something. Um, another one might, might be sort of learning, like having a curiosity or a growth mindset about the world, like always wanting to develop yourself and learn new things. Um, more personal ones like honesty and integrity, authenticity, things like that. Um, so yeah and then when you have your main categories I think it's helpful to write a little bit of a sentence this is how we would um, we did it in the monastic um, inspired program you would write a couple of sentences beneath that about like what that actually would look like in the world so say if your value was service you'd write you know I'm someone who believes in you know giving back in some way and contributing the gifts that I have been given or that I've developed over time sending those back into the world in some capacity Um, so this would look like giving some of my time to an organization that I care about, or it might look like um, using the work in my, in the work that I do in my everyday life to like um, direct it towards a cause or something that matters to me. Um, and then once you have those little summaries for each category, I think one thing that's helpful to do is just give it like a week or a month and see what it feels like to try and bring that into reality. And this is kind of the other end of the spectrum of people who think, okay, well, I can have a sheet of paper that says 10 words on it, but like Mm. that isn't going to change my life in any real way. I think then give it some time to see if you can bring it into your life in a practical way. And this could be any time you're faced with 
a choice or a decision where you're pausing and you're noticing I could take this option, maybe the easier option, or I could take the option that really aligns with what I said that I believed in. So that could be um, sort of with the service example, it could be, you know, should I spend this weekend doing this or like, should I spend it doing that? And which one would align most deeply with my sense of like who I am or how I say I want to live or like spend, spend these opportunities of time. Um, and just noticing wherever there's like a bit of a conflict between what you've written and what you are actually doing. I think even just noticing that without criticism or labeling or self judgment um, is really valuable because it teaches you, you know, that's where the differences are between where you want to be and where you are or where you think you are and where you really are. Um, yeah. Any yeah. Sort of information, yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about that line from David White. He says, you'll find out what is real and what is not. That's how I actually f uh, feel about values or stated beliefs and, they're worth exploring in with your mind and with your imagination. But then you find out, you find out if you, you find out by putting them, by embodying them. And I mean, we're, we're likely to lie to ourselves most of the time anyway. Yeah. I, I value these five things, but when it comes down to it, um, what am I, how am I going to put one foot in front of the other? And then that, and that, those are those like clarifying, um, clarifying moments really a kind of winnowing a winnowing down of um how we'd like to be seen and and how we actually are and that's that's where like the good work is i think um yeah awesome okay um if you don't mind i want to i let's see i'm really interested in um cuz it just rings my bell in a perverse way the um death meditation what does death have to do with this? <laughs> um, and yeah, maybe I'll ask you about something else, but yeah, well, I mean, how did you come to this? Um, and then maybe I'll say a few things about m my relationship with um, the contemplation of death and, and meaning. So what would you say? Yeah, I think um, this is a real existential theme of looking at the finality of life and looking at what it means to, um, what it means to live a good life that also comes to an end and how that end how it feels to have an end if that makes sense and we live in such a culture that can often deny the finality of life or seems to sort of bypass or ignore it and i think it, it can be really valuable i mean other um traditions or other cultures have more of a have had in the past or have now more of an importance of like um holding the end up as like something that is present, even as you're living through your life, like having these periods of like reflecting on the finality of things. Actually, it reminds me in um, a traditional kind of yoga uh, vinyasa class or in a traditional yoga class at the end, you have this um, meditation shavasana, which is like yeah, the yeah. Um, corpse pose, the sort of death meditation, um, which again was kind of what informed my, my inspiration for some of the stuff in that chapter. But the idea that you could, um, almost experience these moments of finality or contemplation of what it means to be at the end of something um, in your everyday life, even as you're full of vitality and like going around in the world, like doing your best, doing your best work and, you know, being true to who you are, but also at the same time holding this sense that there is actually an end. And what would that mean? And how, how does that impact what you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, and not to be too intimidated or like, to, I think sometimes we can have a sense of like not really wanting to look at it because it seems um, 
too unfamiliar or too scary or too final. Um, so yeah, these ideas of death meditation, I mean, they show up in a lot of different cultures. Um, there's like a Buddhist form of meditation, the one I mentioned, uh, yoga, um, Shavasana. Um, and the one one I talk about in the book is like a stoic sort of more stoicism based um, death meditation. So the idea that, you know, life is final and actually that in a way is what makes it um, so precious and um, I was actually asked to comment on an article the other day about like should we live forever <laughs> and like what would it mean because obviously a lot of people trying to develop things to extend our longevity and um, what would it mean if we actually could live forever what would be the existential implications of that and obviously that you know as much as it would be great to live much longer and have more time with the people that we love and doing the things that we really want to do there is also a really real existential importance in like the fragility of life and like making the most of every, every moment because it is so fleeting. Um, mm. And that's almost what gives it its kind of significance. It's a bit of a stoic idea, but also existential. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I, I'm often curious about this zombie phenomenon, like in pop culture. And I mean, I can go in several directions, but this is what's occurring to me right now that, okay, yeah, we can extend life, but it's likely to look more like that. Uh, longer years, but half alive, you know, or half dead or whatever the combination is. And um, yeah, it's that that's an, just because we can doesn't mean it will increase meaning, purpose, truth, um, compassion, relationship, sensitivity. I want to read one of the Stoic quotes in here because I thought it was awesome. What harm is there if you whisper to yourself at the very moment you are kissing your child and say, tomorrow you will die? <laughs> so likewise to your friend, tomorrow you will go abroad or I shall, and we shall never see each other again. Yeah, to me, I mean, that's just totally. Um, yeah. It might be a bit traumatic if you say that to your child. <laughs> I don't know. I maybe, maybe. Well, we, like you said, we're we're anesthetized, or what if that's, um, maybe that's not the right word, but it's um, we're we try to keep death at arm's length, and it's and and we suffer because of such a thing. We suffer with a kind of like, um, denial, and sometimes I don't. I'm not trying to be clinical, so. I mean, I, I think about the word depression and as pressing down, you know, and for sure we press down finality. We we press down the the nobody gets out of this alive. Like it's gonna happen. We're all gonna die. And by bringing that back in a in a kind of loving way into a com the into conversation with our life, um, and uh, you know. Like you were saying, traditional cultures, the world over, have had a much closer relationship with death, and then we than we have in the modern world. And so, I just really appreciate the practices that are in here. I've done many similar things. Like, in fact, one time, well, when I was doing one of my major life transitions, leaving the world of uh, megachurch land and not doing anything for a while, um, I made. It's a, a practice I got from from Animus, where I'm have done my training as a guide. But um, I made a, a lodge in on in the back of my property, which I called the Death Lodge, and I put little skulls that I found in on the ground and 
I mean, that I that I wasn't even looking for. I'd be like, oh, that's going in the death lodge. And and I would sit out there um, and sometimes do nothing other than just to allow the my imagination and my sort of the somatic feeling that comes with that of my own finality, that I'm not going to live forever. And and even sometimes as part of the death lodge practice, certain it would occur to me in my imaginations that certain people might come. Like if I imagine myself on my deathbed, who would be there? And what would need to be said or what's left unsaid? And what am I okay with leaving unsaid? And what am I not okay with leaving unsaid? And what um what details do I need to take care of? It's funny because after sometimes I'd sit out there, I'd have a, a I'd I'd have a real sense that there were some practical things I need to take care of. You you would think it would be the opposite. Like, we're all going to die. What does it matter? Let's get drunk or something. But it's actually much more like, no, I don't want to leave the house a mess. (laughs) Like, uh, I'm going to clean up this shit in the corner of my garage because I don't want to live like this. I don't want to pass this on to someone. So even like very, it's very small and minor thing. But um, anyway, I really resonated with that, that section of, um, of your book and, and of course, it comes in the context of a lot of other kinds of practices. I don't want to get the give people the wrong impression that you're, you know, trying to entice people to into a kind of a morbid landscape. But uh, it actually has to do with the question of being alive. Yeah, I don't think you can really feel fully alive um, unless there's some consciousness of of the limits. It's like what you're saying about monasticism. Limits potentially provide some freedom. And death is a limiter. And within that, I think it opens up a kind of mysterious um, landscape of freedom. At least that's that's my my way of putting it. Yeah, I love that. I was thinking um, while you were talking, um, this idea of the two halves of life, you know, the kind mm-hmm. of, well, I read about it mostly um, in Richard Raw's um, book, Falling Upward. But yeah. also, like, I mean, it's that idea is also in other places as well. But the idea that, yeah, life does have, like it does have a shape to it it has like a rise and a fall and so it's not just like this linear like thing that's going to go on indefinitely like it has like a structure or a rhythm to it and in that structure is really like where the fullness is like finding the shape within that you know if you're going for the first and second half idea the idea that you are like growing you know you're moving into a different season and then just like everything else in the world like things change and they develop and things end and new things begin and yeah I think there's some real depth in that idea as well yeah. 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 I love that. That's when I first heard the phrase second half of life was from Richard Rohr. It comes from Jung though. He he talks about the first and second half of life and um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe I don't want to open up, open up that door right the second uh, because I want to ask you about something. And this is something I was wondering as I was reading the book, I was like, Hmm, it's a lot of practice in here. We we've only just touched on a couple got mind we have body we have work we have self um whoa that's a lot um how would i even you know begin a relationship do i just pick one and of course you're probably going to say you could pick one you could do them all you could you it's up to you and i i totally believe you but you also did something which i thought was kind of um a provocative challenge in the like postscript of the book or whatever maybe it's just the last chapter which is the idea of a 30 day challenge so i i I'd like you to speak to that. What if, because I don't know, there's something about the fall that, I mean, in, in our hemisphere here um, and the turning toward winter, the 
way the light is changing so rapidly now that kind of like it, for me at least kind of pulls us pulls human beings pulls me um into um i guess a more introverted introspective time period i mean it's like it's what animals are doing they're like starting to hibernate or whatever they're starting to collect things that they need to survive for the winter and they and so i think I'm asking you about this 30-day challenge because I think now's a good time for such a thing. This there's something about the season that uh, might call for it. So, what do you have in mind with um, what could you do with this 30 days? And um, yeah, describe it a little bit if you would, please. Yeah, I I haven't done something like that before. Like put that into a book at the end because um, I have a few other practical style books on different topics, but I've never tried to do like pull it all together like that. The reason I actually wanted to do it was because I had this other book called the purpose handbook, which was out a few years ago. And um, one of the things it was very like exercise based all around finding a sense of purpose. It was a bit more practical than this kind of more comprehensive meaning and life and body and soul type book. But um one thing that I heard from a few people who really wanted to like do the exercises fully is that they just found it so kind of kind of like you were saying with the rule of life they found it so intimidating to actually do the like to look at the questions and to make Mm -hmm. themselves do it so they would read the book and think I would love to do that but actually I can't there's something like preventing me from like getting onto the step of doing it and so what I wanted to do was like give people just a template in which you can just you can move through it quite quickly you don't have to like set yourself this one exercise for a month and really force yourself through it but you're kind of just exploring you're treading quite lightly you're just going through it and you're seeing you know what would it look like if I spent this whole month just focusing on this and then this and then this and then this and then at the end you see what you're left with and what you want to take forwards and what you want to change up and um, I think all of these like personal development type stuff is always subject to change because it's like our lives are evolving all the time so it doesn't make sense to be like my routine is this and I do this every single day for the rest of my life because you know then you move houses or like you change careers yeah, or yeah. family like it just doesn't work like that so I think to hold yourself to something too rigid for me has never really made sense so I think I see it more as like building up a toolkit of practices you're like at this time in my life this works really well so I'm gonna keep with this and then when I'm changing careers I also want to focus on this so then you're looking at different aspects um but yeah, I had a, a reader get in touch to say that she'd um, done the whole thing and like journaled it. And she sent me all of these, like, it was amazing. She'd like really done like a little calendar and like checked off all the days and like had all of her. So I think it really suits someone who is a little, who needs a bit of, um, who would benefit from a bit of a template, like some way to move through it. And also maybe on another, like another type of reader might be someone who just feels like overwhelmed with the amount of stuff that they want to do or that they want to try here's like a way that you could just go through day by day um yeah, yeah. i'd be interested to know um how different people find it because obviously everyone has such a different approach and as i as i always say i never want to tell anyone what to do but i do want to offer some options <laughs> yeah well it's almost better just to say this is what works for me and you can go yeah. find out you know yeah. so yeah which is essentially what you're doing so um Okay. Yeah. I feel like, um, I want to thank you for, for your time and for sending me your book and for speaking with me. I I hope people find some valuable threads here and that I hope it piques their curiosity around practice, around ritual, around ceremony. Ceremony is another way of talking about what we're talking about. And, um, I do know my feeling is, um, that the modern world, 
I don't really know if I, I was about to blame the modern world, which sounds kind of ridiculous, but um, I, I think there is a kind of crisis of meaning happening. I mean, it's, it's sometimes very on the surface and sometimes pretty far down. And, but I imagine most people who, and well, people are listening to this podcast, I hope, um, know what, what, um, have a relationship with this kind of crisis of meaning and are asking the same kinds of questions. And I hope they'll find practical things, um, uh, to bring into their life. Uh, it's, it's always, it, there's, um, a kind of, you don't know how much of life is addition and how much is subtraction. And I never know how to answer that. It's kind of like what you're saying. It depends. It depends on what, I mean, sometimes it's adding a practice and sometimes it's subtracting five other things, you know? Um, but I, I, at least I find the tools that you're pointing toward to be, to be very helpful and personally resonant. And I've tried many of them. So um, anything you want to, I don't know, anything happening for you as we're, as we're speaking and something that's coming up, uh, something I missed, something you wanted to, to, to tug on a little bit. It's a kind of parting thought, anything? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think just what you said at the end there is really, um, yeah, that is the approach that I wanted to take. And one of the reasons I enjoy your podcast so much, I think is because you have this really like exploratory approach to some of these sometimes intimidating topics that can be kind of big and people, yeah, it can be easy to not want to engage with them at all. But for me, I think an approach that is just um, curious and kind of going into different areas and seeing what works and trying different things. And I think also I always want to emphasize that this kind of stuff should be interesting slash fulfilling slash exciting. Like I never, I never want anyone to feel like the self-development stuff that I talk about is a bit of a tedious kind of like got to do my everyday, <laughs> my everyday work on myself. Um, but like for me, these practices and you got to find something that fits or resonates with you, but the ability to just really enjoy the process of learning more about yourself in your life, I think is the real gift of some of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, and your title points to such a thing that you're asking the question, but are you alive? And yeah, I mean, that's, there's, again, that kind of aliveness and vitality is sort of hidden in plain sight and much of what you're describing. So yeah. Um, yeah. This feels like a, a good place to land. Thanks for, thanks for speaking with me. Thank you so much for having me.